We ask your undivided attention this morning as we complete the subject that we have spent now four weeks upon, that being the chief purpose for man's existence. And we want to take the material that we presented in the last three Sundays on this subject and make some applications to our lives as individuals and as a church to see just how this principle or this truth will affect us in this day in which that we live. Now, we've found that the chief purpose of man's existence is summarized in this short but brief sentence, and that is, it is to glorify and enjoy his God forever. And we found that when God created man, he created him in his own image and gave him a capacity to glorify and enjoy him in a fashion that he did not give the animal creation. And therefore, the chief duty of man is to enjoy his God in the spiritual realm. Then we also found that God placed man over dominion of the creation, and that he was to till the ground, he was to rule over the earth uh, as a servant of God. And that this we called man's inferior end. His chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. His inferior end, to rule over the material universe. So we can summarize this in two words. His chief end is spiritual and is in the spiritual realm. His inferior end is in the material realm. And we found that when man sinned, the essence of his sin was that he loved self more than he loved the glorifying of God. And therefore, he became a sinner. And now then, man gets his enjoyment not out of God and, the, and glorifying him, but out of the material earth in which that he's in. And so we're trying to emphasize that man can never glorify God or enjoy his God as long as he is in a state whereby he must concentrate upon the material which is in the universe. Now, if this be true, then there should be some principles in this that may help correct some of the errors which are existing in the modern church. And what are these? How can this truth, that man's chief duty is to glorify God, how can this correct some of the prevailing errors which exist in the church at large today? And I want to present at least four of these this morning in bringing this application of this truth home to our lives. And the first is this. It should cause us, as individuals, to make sure that our conversion experience is centered in God's glory and not in our well-being. I want to say that again. If God's glory and his righteousness as revealed in Jesus Christ is to be the chief end for all of our existence, then we should examine our own conversion experience and see if it has been centered in God's glory or in our happiness or self-interest. 
And it's so easy in this age of feeble, weak, man-centered evangelism to have a conversion experience which is centered in ourselves, not in the glory of God. So I invite our attention now, and you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Matthew chapter 6, and beginning in verse 24, our Lord sets forth a great teaching here describing the philosophy of life that the Gentile or the pagan man has. That is, the person who's not a religious man, as such that he does not follow the principles of God as revealed in the Word of God. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. No man can serve two masters. Now try to relate this. Two ends of man, a chief and an inferior. No man can concentrate on two chief ends. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Then he says, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink. Now notice he's talking about the material realm now. Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, for, uh, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Is there not more to man's existence than the material realm? of sustaining his existence. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take you thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought. And that little phrase, take no thought, means literally, be not anxious, do not worry, Take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. Now, what things? These are all things which belong in the realm of the material in man's inferior end for his existence. But notice what Jesus says. He said, this is the way the Gentiles think. This is what they pursue after every day of their life, is trying to provide food, clothing, and raiment, and that's all their life consists of. But he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, what is Christ saying? He's saying, here's the way the Gentiles think. They think along the material realm of the universe. They think that whatever is physical, that's where they seek after these things. But Jesus says, don't be like them. 
You seek God and his righteousness first, and these things shall take care of themselves. Now, what he is but saying is what we've been laboring upon for several weeks now in showing that man's chief duty is to be centered in God and the righteousness that is revealed in Jesus Christ, and in doing so, the material realm, he will find more enjoyment and it will take care of itself. But when you begin to seek this end down here and neglect this, oh, my friend, you reveal yourself as a pagan, someone who's lacking in the knowledge of God. So here is the, the Gentile or the pagan view of life. And Jesus warned elsewhere in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, Man shall not live by what? Bread alone. Man was not created just for his physical existence alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Get them in the proper order. God's chief end, his glory. And the inferior end is taking care of his creation under his dominion. So man shall not just live by the material, the natural uh, realm alone, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13 sets forth this great principle with these words. Listen carefully as God says these words. For my people have committed two evils, two evils. Now, Israel had broken every commandment that there was. They had sinned in, do in dozens and dozens of ways. But God summarized it all up in these two ways. Now, what are they? Notice carefully. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Now, did you analyze that? Now, let's look at it. God says they've committed two evils. One, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have made themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Now, what's he in essence saying? They have forsaken me as the chief goal of their life, my glory, and they have made themselves cisterns which are broken, and they can hold no water. Whenever you set out to make yourself the main end in your life, my friends, you'll never find enjoyment in your life. Because the only way that you'll ever find lasting enjoyment is to center your being in the glorification of God. God says, my people have done this very thing. They've forsaken me, the fountain, and they've looked to their own fountains, and these fountains can never hold any substance. So you see how this is tied in. Now, in uh, this is the Gentile or the pagan view of life that man exists for himself. Now, there's another view of life, though, which is predominant, and perhaps we might be speaking to someone like that under the sound of our voice today. And that's the view of the religious man, but yet the unconverted religious man. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Now, we're not talking about the pagan man now. We're talking about the Pharisee, the religious man. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, we read these words. 
believe we have it here. Yes. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a profound statement, and it's something that ought to cause each of us to reflect upon it. Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So a question we should then ask is this, what kind of righteousness did the scribes and Pharisees have? And we can study about them in the Gospels and in secular history, and we find that externally they had a righteousness that was virtually spotless. They were not the downtrodden sinner. They were the individuals that they wouldn't even look at a person whom they considered sinful. These were individuals like the Apostle Paul who would describe himself that as touching the law, he was blameless. That is, externally, their perfection or their righteousness was that of perfection. But yet Jesus said internally, you're like a grave, you're full of dead men's bones. You're like a cup that's clean on the outside, but inside it's still dirty. So what kind of righteousness did the scribes and the Pharisees have? They had a self-righteousness. A righteousness which they used religious acts in order to make themselves appear righteous in the eyes of men. Now let's look in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes here in verse 6 and see how Christ describes righteousness. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And in verse 12, or verse 11, Blessed are ye when men, I'm sorry, verse 10, Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's this term, righteousness' sake. But it is a righteousness which is not centered in ourselves. It's centered in Jesus Christ, who is outside of ourselves. It is a righteousness which desires God's name to be glorified and not our well-being. It is a righteousness whereby that a person is willing to suffer persecution for it. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had a righteousness. And what kind of righteousness was it? All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2, and let's watch the scribes and the Pharisees as they perform their religious duties, and let's see the motive of these religious duties. Why, do, why did the scribe and the Pharisee go to church? Why did he do certain good deeds? Let's watch as Jesus reveals why he did. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, or that is, thy good deeds unto others, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. You see that? Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Why does the religious man, the scribe and the Pharisee, why does he perform his religious duties? 
that he may receive glory from men. Not that he does these for the glory of God, but that men might find glory in him and say, boy, isn't that person a good Christian? Now, Jesus says they have their reward. They were seen of men. They received their reward. Now also in verse 5, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues at the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Now this is just in a nutshell the essence of the Pharisaical religion. It was a religion in which that men performed religious acts not for the glory of God, but for their own glory, and thus they can be described as individuals who have sinned and come short of the what? The glory of God. Do you see that even though you may not be a pagan, even though you may be performing religious acts, going to church, singing in the choir, reading your Bible, and various things like this, if you do these acts for self-centered purposes, you still come short of the glory of God. You see that? You may be able to look down your nose at the old pagan, the fellow out here who never does any of these religious acts, but my friend, in light of the glory of God, you still come short. You see that? You see what a, what a terrible case that a person can be in, like the Pharisee in thinking that, my, I'm more righteous than this man, but yet God says you're still lacking in that which is sufficient to allow you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, we need to make sure that our conversion experience is centered in God's glory, not just in our glory and our own self-interest. Now, the second application of this truth is that it exposes the humanism which prevails in modern evangelism. It exposes the humanism which prevails in modern evangelism. Modern evangelism has made man the chief end in its efforts. Everywhere you go, you hear that the main purpose for the existence of the church is the salvation of lost men. Now, hear me carefully. That is not true. That is not true. The purpose for the church is the chief end of it is not the salvation of lost men. This is like saying that Adam's main purpose in his creation was to till the Garden of Eden. That wasn't. That was the inferior end of his, of his creation. The chief end was the glorification of God. No, the chief end in evangelism is the glory of God, my friend, and the inferior end is the salvation of sinners. Now, do you see that? The chief end of why we evangelize is to bring glory unto God, and the inferior end is to bring salvation to sinners. But when you reverse this, then you end up in many, many evils, and that's where modern evangelism finds itself stuck in the quagmire today. Its thinking has become centered in man, and it's concentrating upon an inferior end rather than the glory of God. And until we return to a God-centered evangelism, we will not have converts 
who get their delights from the things of God. Now, did you hear that? Until we return to a God-centered evangelism, we will not have converts who get their delights from the things of God. Whenever a man-centered evangelism exists, it will have to have superficial means and humanistic motivations to keep its converts interested and excited in their religious activities. And I ask you to look out on the church today. The church gives the impression that it's a dying man with its throat cut trying to grasp for breath to influence people. And why is this? Because it's concentrating upon its inferior end rather than its chief end. And therefore, men are going crazy today trying to figure up some new methods and means to get people to come to church and to keep the people that are coming happy and interested. Now, why is this? Because whenever you have a man-centered evangelism, you'll have to use something that motivates that man to keep him interested in the things of God. And unless that man is centered in God's glory, he's not going to enjoy the spiritual things of God. And that's why that when the word of God is preached in sincerity and in truth, the person who has not made God his chief end and his glory, those things will be just so much dust to him. And that's what we're dealing with in this modern age, is individuals who have been brought under the auspices of the church but really have little love for the things of God. They don't enjoy the spiritual things of God. And why don't they? Because God is not their chief goal. Themselves are their chief goal. A good friend of mine, a pastor in St. Louis, received a telephone call uh, one time, and it was from a man who said, Pastor, I want to be saved. I've heard you over the radio, and I want you to come and tell me how to be saved. So the pastor went to his home, and the man began pouring out his problems to him. His wife had left him, one of his children was sick, was sick. And his, his work was in a mess, and he just filled with problems. And he said, now, I want to be saved. And the pastor asked him a question, and I thank God for a pastor who has some spiritual discernment. But he said these words, would you still want to be saved if after you were saved you still had all the problems you've got right now? And the man thought a moment, and he said, no. The pastor said, then I have no gospel to offer you. Now, you think about that for a moment. Why did you want to be saved? Was it just to get you out of a mess? Oh, my friend, you've missed the end purpose of the gospel. If a man just wants to be use Christ as a fire escape to get out of his problems... That man doesn't know what the real gospel is. Oh, my friend, that we might see that whenever a sinner is appealed to on any other basis, lower than the glory of God, he will never find delight from enjoying his God. That's why we present to you a gospel today that for you to embrace Christ, you should do that because it's the right thing to do. 
because you're a sinner and you're defiling the name of God and you need to flee to Christ and his righteousness in order to glorify the God who is in heaven, his mercy and his grace. Now, that's the reason why you ought to desire to be saved, not just so that it'll solve a few family problems, not just so to make you happy, not just so that you may even escape hell, but that you might glorify God who is in heaven. There's the chief end of why the gospel is presented to sinners. Then the third application of this great truth is this. It reveals the dangers of appealing to the natural or carnal interest of man in the hope that he will somehow become spiritual. Let's regroup our thoughts very quickly for a moment. Let's say it again. It reveals the danger of appealing to the natural or carnal interest of man in the hope that he will become spiritual. There's a divine law of natural science which says like produces like. Jesus set forth this law and he set it forth as God's law. In John chapter 3 and verse 6, that which is born of the spirit or flesh is what? Flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is what? Spirit. Marvel not that I say to thee, you must be born again. Flesh can only produce one thing, and that's flesh. The spirit produces one thing. That which is spiritual. And you cannot appeal on a fleshly basis to an unregenerate man and hope to make that man spiritual. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus says these words, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now notice here's two ways. Remember back that text we read a few minutes ago? God said, My people have committed what? Two evils. Now, Jesus says here's two ways. One way is a broad way, and another way is a straight gate and a narrow way. What do you suppose that broad way is that so many go in thereat? It's that way which they go in at with the hope of some self-gain. That is some easy way whereby that they shall enter into the portals of glory. What is that straight gate? My friend, it's that in which a person must come down to as the camel. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. What is that? It's when a man must come down and literally have all of his hopes and self-righteousness in himself crushed out to where that he has to go outside of himself in hope and trust in another. 
That's the straight gate and the narrow way. And that is, in essence, through the whole Bible called the glory of God. You see, God's glorified in that way of salvation. That puts man out of the picture whereby he cannot boast about his own meriting his salvation, but that he must ascribe all of his salvation to the glory of God. And that is that straight gate and narrow way. But in contrast to that, there's a wide gate and a wide way, and many are going on that way. And that is the way that Jesus says leads unto destruction. Now let's make just a quick application of this and and, uh, maybe a question you've wondered about. Maybe you haven't. And that is this. You must say, Brother Gables... You've been here now some eight, nine months, and as of yet, you've never offered any type of a promotion to try to get the church filled on a given Sunday. You've never offered any incentives to try to get the Sunday school here a big day and so forth. You've never told people if they would bring five visitors then you would give them a book, or you'd give them this or that and the other. Brother Gables, why don't you do that? All right, I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) I'm glad you asked that question. Because, my friend, put it in relation to this truth. If you are motivated to bring five people to this church, it ought to be for the glory of God, not what you're going to get from it. You see that? And if I appeal to you on this inferior end, I'm only making a hypocrite out of you. That's why. You see the whole essence of this? If you will go out and work work hard all week and you bring 20 people to pack a pew in order to get a hamburger or a trip to the Holy Land, my friend, you've done it for self-glory. To be seen of men. And if you will not go out the next week and work just as hard when you won't get a thing, then you've not done nothing but become a hypocrite and you have received all your glory from men. That's why we do not appeal to people on the inferior end, but on the chief end. That's why when I go out and invite a sinner to church, I don't come in inviting there. Now, I want you to come and you'll have a good time if you'll come. I don't try to pull the wool over his eyes. If I want somebody to come to church, I tell him, I want you to come to church because in so doing, you can seek the glory of God. And I desire to see you do that and for no other reason. You see that? In other words, we always point men to the chief end of their existence. We do not begin with them down here lower in the mud where it only makes them still self-centered, but we point them to the chief end. And when they set out to fulfill that chief end, you watch and start seeing if they don't begin to enjoy their Christian experience even more. You see, glorifying God enables you to enjoy God. And if you don't enjoy God, you can't glorify him. If you come to church just to get excited, you'll never really glorify God. If you come to church to glorify God, you'll leave enjoying the presence of God. You see, they're related together. So it reveals the danger of appealing to the natural 
or the carnal interest of man in the hope that somehow that man will become more spiritual. No, hold up high the pole of salvation so that man has no doubt what you're wanting him to do and then leave the results with that man and God. Don't try to trick him. Don't try to get a person here under the pretenses, well, now, listen, would you come and help me pack my pew this Sunday when what you really want him to do is to come here and hope that he might be saved? Tell that person you want him to come to church because you want to see him glorify God. Don't pull the wool over his eyes. Don't practice deception. Don't practice falsehood. Be honest with people. And if there's any need in this age of Christianity, it is in an age in which that we need to do away with the superficiality, the hypocrisy, and tell people the truth of God as it is. But I know what you're thinking. You say, Pastor, if we do that, we won't reach them. Then, my friend, we cannot reach them. If a man is not interested in the chief end of his existence to glorify God, then Jesus says, don't you cast the pearls before swine. Say, I don't like that. You take it up with Christ, not with me. I didn't say it. Okay? Don't you take the precious truth of God's glory and let man eat it like swine do in a pig pen. Don't take the preciousness of God and let man do with it whatever he wants to do. If man's not interested in the gospel, then he's like Ephraim, which the prophet says, Ephraim hath joined himself to idols. Let him alone. Let him alone. Oh, but you say that, that's not kind. That's not compassionate. My friend, that's Bible. That's Bible. And why you don't like that is because you're a humanist, you're centered in man, not in God. And you want man and his happiness to be exalted above God and his glory. And now I understand that because we live in an age of humanism, an age in which that man is to be exalted in all things. Then in closing, this great truth that God is to be the chief end of all of our existence shows the absolute necessity for a sovereign work of grace to change the heart of a sinner from loving self into the heart of a saint who loves God. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. How can a sinner who loves self stop loving self and start loving God? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Can a man do this? Modern evangelism tells us unhesitatingly, why, yes. All he has to do is decide to do so. <laughs> Not much of a miracle in that, is there? If I can give myself a new heart by my deciding, then why on earth is there a need for a man to be born again? If all I have to do is just decide, well, I'm going to be a Christian, and then once I make that decision, then God will be there to meet me. Then what's the great mystery of the new birth? No, Jesus said, with men it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Only God can come down in sovereign grace and make you a new creation in Christ. Only God can come down and change that heart of loving self 
and cause it to embrace the offer of mercy which is in Jesus Christ. Only he can do that. And that's why we need to be shut up under this great truth that if you and I have any hope at all of ever entering into the presence of God and enjoying him forever, we must cast ourselves upon him. O God, while on others are calling, do not pass me by. God, come and give me a new heart. Come and write your laws within. Cast this old stony heart out that loves self. Put in this fleshly heart which loves you and loves the righteousness which comes from you. These applications bring us now to this conclusion for these last four Sundays, and that is this. Any act of man which is not centered in God's glory will not stand the test of God's judgment. And man will never find lasting enjoyment out of his existence without making the glory of God his eternal goal. Is that your goal today? Are you living to glorify God? Or are you living just to get all you can, all the gusto out of this life? That's the whole crux of the matter as it relates to where you're existing today. Are you using God's religious acts just for your own benefit? Do you come to church here Sunday after Sunday just because your neighbor would see that if you didn't go, well, he'd come over and say, why didn't you go to church Sunday? Or maybe it's because your mom and dad make you come, and you, you wouldn't want to come otherwise, but yet you have your name on this church roll as being a Christian. My friend, accept your righteousness, exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. It takes more than externals. It takes an internal change of devotion from self to God, and only God can give that. Let's stand together, Rick. You have a number.